The two men gripped each other's hand. The goal was to pin the other's arm onto the surface of the table, the winner's arm over the loser's. Mikulak slammed his palm on the table, and the wrestling began. In an instant, merriment filled the room, and the Cossacks began their howls of encouragement and support for their commandant. However, holding on to faith in something greater than oneself, whether that is faith in God, in humanity, or in one's personal values, enables individuals to find inner strength and resilience. Welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am happy to be joined by D.G. Schulman, author of the novel Anna's Promise. And that was kind of one of the things I really wanted. I wanted to make sure that working with this press and this editor was going to make me a better writer, and it was going to make Anna's Promise a better book. And I think both of those things are true. D.G. Schulman is a publishing executive who married the boy next door and lives in the Midwest where she and her husband raised their two daughters. She is a night owl who loves to write fiction into the wee hours of the morning. When she's not in front of a keyboard, she enjoys making chocolate, growing herbs, cooking, reading, and spending time with her married children and growing brood of grandkids. Today, I'll be talking to her about her novel, Anna's Promise. I wonder if you can start by telling us more about the Cossacks. Who are they and what role did they play in World War I? Yes, the, the Cossacks were predominantly East Slavic people uh, living in the northern regions of the Black and Caspian Seas. They were known for their independence and military service and were often utilized by the Russian Empire as they defenders of their frontiers, and also advance guards during territorial expansion. So during World War I, the Cossacks formed cavalry regiments and fought for the Russian army against the Central Powers. Um, they were also infamous for their involvement in suppressing revolutionary movements in Russia and also carrying out pogroms against Jews. So in 1915, the Cossacks were employed to seize control of cities like Shedlitz in Poland. And this was due to their loyalty to the Tsar and also their hostility, quite frankly, towards the Polish nationalists who were seeking independence from Russia. 
<clears throat> they had a reputation as being fierce and ruthless fighters, along with their expertise in mounted warfare. Um, it provided them with an advantage in terms of mobility and speed, and they could intimidate and terrorize the local population. So I, I wonder if you could talk more about the circumstances in Poland during World War One, specifically the issues that Jews faced and how many of them became refugees and resettled to places in, um, outside of Poland, like America, like your characters do. During World War One, Poland was part of the Russian Empire, um, which had been engaged in the war since very early in 1914. And the circumstances in Poland during this time were marked by military occupation, political unrest, social upheaval. And the Jewish population in Poland experienced significant effects. They faced displacement. They became refugees. Many were forced to leave their homes in search of safety. Uh, the war also caused the normal economic hardship that always comes with war, leading to unemployment and poverty, shortages of food and medicine and all kinds of supplies. In addition to that, anti-Semitic sentiments intensified, resulting in organized attacks that were called pogroms against Jewish communities in various parts of Poland. In terms of refugees, how many of them became refugees and settled in places like America? I don't know exactly the number. I wasn't ever able to find the number, but it's estimated that tens of thousands of Jews sought to escape the turmoil that was caused by the war. Uh, they were in search of safer and more stable conditions. Some went to European countries like Germany, France, and the United Kingdom, and others went further into America, especially the United States, uh, into the Americas, especially the United States. And it's, it's probably important to, to note that this actually marked the beginning of a much larger trend of Jewish emigration from Eastern Europe, which continued and only increased throughout the interwar period and then intensified during and after World War II. And this history that, that you've been talking about, it um, is it based on your own family history? And how much of your family history do you put into the novel Anna's Promise? So it is, it is based upon my family's history, but it's very much fiction. Everything in the story, I like to say everything in the story didn't happen, but it very well could have happened. Um, my mother was the youngest of five children. She was the only one in her family who was born in America. She grew up in a family of immigrants and attended her first day of kindergarten in America, not speaking a word of English. She only spoke Yiddish. So my whole childhood was filled with these rich stories about my family's life in Shevlitz, Poland, and also about those early days in America. And yes, my grandfather truly was very strong and brave and bigger than life. Uh, I was actually named after him. I never met him. I only heard many, many stories about him. So it's my mother. Actually, my mother lived with my family and uh, after my father passed away. And as she got older, she became nostalgic and shared more stories and more observations about her early life and about the stories she heard from her parents, her sisters, her brother, um, about what life was like um, in Shedlitz. 
So while the characters and events in Anna's Promise are fictional, like I said, they are all things that could have happened. My grandfather was actually a kosher butcher in Shedlitz, Poland, who was trained in the art of ritual slaughter, and the Cossacks persistently pilfered his meat market. And they were, as a family uh, who owned a meat market, they were really very nearly starving. And ultimately that forced them to emigrate to America. Cossacks stormed into my grandparents' home in Shedlitz on Friday nights. They ate their Sabbath feasts and they stole my grandmother's silver candlesticks. And uh, something I didn't put in the story, but my mother told me, and I kind of wish I did put in the book, is she told me that she heard from her sisters that after the Cossacks stole my grandmother's candlesticks one Friday night, thereafter, my grandmother would take potatoes and she dug wells in the potatoes each week and she used those as candlesticks. Wow, those are some incredible stories. At what point did you feel inspired to turn these stories into a novel? So after my mother passed away, I was working on these stories about Shedlitz. And at the same time, I was actually obsessed with writing a novel about Jewish life in Metro Detroit in the 1970s and the 1980s. So my my particular routine schedule of writing is I always write at night. I start about 10 o'clock at night and I go to about two in the morning. And I do that pretty much seven days a week. Sometimes I take a day off here and there if my husband really wants to see me. So one night I was working on this Actually, I was working on the story, um, the novel that was taking place in Metro Detroit in the 1970s and 80s. And in the middle of working on it, I had this epiphany. And I realized for the first time that these two pieces I was working on, the stories about Shedlitz and the stories about Metro Detroit, were not, in fact, two novels, but they were a single story about one Jewish family in two timelines across three generations. So what this prompted me to do is I printed out, I had about 50 chapters written at that point between the two pieces. I printed them all out and I laid them all in piles on the living room floor. And then I sat up for the rest of the night and I reorganized them into a single story, uh, intertwining the two narratives. And suddenly I had this clarity of this gestalt of one story and each one of them just made so much more sense when I put it together with the other one. Can you give us a little bit of a synopsis for the, each narrative and, and the characters that are within those stories? Sure. So um, in, in Shedless, Poland, we are dealing with primarily uh, a nuclear family. Um, the, the father, who is the, the butcher, his name is David, and the mother, her name was Esther. And then there were the children, and the, the dominant characters there are the oldest sister, Sarah, and the second sister, who is Hannah. Uh, there are younger siblings that are, are less important characters. Um, their story is is really what life was like there. The other narrative is basically dealing with this character, Hannah, 
who was now a grandmother. This is 60 years later, and she's now a grandmother. And her husband, Mo, who you meet actually in the 1914-1915 narrative, um, is, is part of the story there. He passes away early on. And their children are grown, and they have, a, they have grandchildren, and they have a grandson whose name is Ben. And Ben plays a critical role in the 1975 timeline of the story with a very important um, transforming relationship that he has with his grandmother. And he was very close with his grandfather. So he's very affected uh, by the death of his grandfather in 1975. So you must have done an awful lot of research in addition to the family stories um, in order to fill the, fill the gaps and add some historical details. What did you learn during your research that maybe you weren't aware of just from the family stories or maybe that, that shocked or surprised you? So one of the things I didn't understand before I started doing research was the geopolitical situation in Poland. I discovered that the partition of Poland refers to a period when the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth which was a once powerful state in Central and Eastern Europe, was divided and taken over by the neighboring powers. This lasted, this partition lasted for 123 years. So from 1772 all the way basically until 1918, which was really the end of World War I, Poland was divided up among its, its neighboring powers. I had I really didn't understand that. I knew that there were many different languages and, and things going on in Poland, but I, I really I was very surprised to find out that the three neighboring powers, Russia, Prussia, and Austria, basically saw an opportunity to divide and annex um, Polish territories. That also helped me understand a little bit more about the um, the people in Poland, they had a they had a very long this had a very long and lasting impact on them. The Polish people were faced with repression, cultural assimilation attempts, and sort of limitations on their national identity. So that that whole geopolitical piece of Poland was was very very interesting to me in terms of that timeline. Um, in the other timeline, in 1975, I, I did an awful lot of research on a couple of the other subplots. One of them actually had to do with the, the subplot regarding the, the, the prison piece and the, um, the son, Ira, who is incarcerated um, and was convicted of being involved in a, in a script mill. This is something that there was actually an awful lot of press about this in the 70s and 80s. I should probably talk for a minute about what I do for my day job. My day job, I, I work in, in publishing. I've worked in publishing for many decades. And what the company, the company I work for is called NewsBank. We actually build research databases. So um, my group actually works on licensing content for research databases that we sell to schools and libraries. And I make use of that research database, um, test it out, make sure I like the way the product works and understand how the product works. And one of the things I did a lot of research on was these script mills 
that had cropped up um, in Michigan. There were some actually in um, Wisconsin. I think there might have been some in Minnesota. I found many, many stories about um, these situations where you had usually residents, doctors, who had a very, very high um, debt from medical school, who were lured into moonlighting and uh, trying to make some extra money to survive on a resident's low salary and and pay off their, their um, debt from medical school. They got lured into working in these clinics where they, in, in short, kind of became, um, they were just writing scripts that were not uh, for Schedule Three narcotics that were not um, were not for medical purposes, and there was lots of articles about these kinds of really tragic situations in publications like the News and the Free Press and and all sorts of other um, newspapers. So I do I do research in those kinds of research databases as well as the really old stuff like we're talking the 1800s in early 20th century. I use all sorts of other very old um, um, sources, including things like Britannica. That's interesting. It sounds like a very fascinating job. And uh, yeah, I can imagine you were able to come across some sources that, that other researchers, other authors maybe might be hard to come by. There's a huge amount of information. We actually have 14,000 sources Wow. Um, under license. So I actually believe it's probably the largest research database in the world. So I'm very proud of it. I've been working at that for about 18 years. Well, um, the, the novel's called Anna's Promise, and, and that refers to a promise Anna makes to hold on to her faith um, even during the, the transition, even during all the the challenges and, uh, and traumatic events that, that happened. Can you talk about holding on to the Jewish faith despite, I mean, whether it's a personal anecdote or from your character's perspective or just in general um, from the Jewish, holding on to the Jewish, Jewish faith through so many difficult moments in history? Yeah, one of my favorite nonfiction books is called Man's Search for Meaning, written by Viktor Frankl. He was a Holocaust survivor and a psychiatrist. I read this book for the first time when I was in high school, and I was really transformed by it. Viktor Frankl explores the importance of finding meaning in life, uh, even in the most challenging circumstances. Um, most of us don't, don't have the kind of challenge that a person who was in the Holocaust endures, but the book suggests that faith in its broader sense, I, I would say in this case, can provide individuals with the strength and the hope and purpose needed to navigate and find meaning in, in the most difficult times. So we all know that tragic situations cause extreme, causing extreme suffering, like persecution, hardship, and war, can evoke intense emotions such as fear, grief, anger, despair. However, holding on to faith in something greater than oneself, whether that is faith in God, in humanity, or in one's personal values, enables individuals to find inner strength and resilience. And I, I think back to Frankel's book. I've actually reread it several times as an adult, 
and I'm I continue to be um, very moved and always take it to a different level. That it's it's quite remarkable that people who are in really the the most tragic situations of extreme suffering that I think anyone could imagine, the ones who survived were the ones who had faith, who had hope, who had a meaning. And they were the ones who who saw that there was something bigger, something greater than there's greater than oneself. Yeah, well said. Um I want to switch gears and ask you a little bit about your writing process. As a writer myself, I'm always curious to know what other novelists uh, go through. So can you talk about the process for you of, I mean, how long did it take you to get your manuscripts completed? You already talked a little bit about combining those two narratives. Um, and then and then once it was finished, once you had a first draft, what was the editing like for you, and, and how long did that process take? Yeah, the... The first couple years, I was, it was very difficult. It was a hard book for me to write. The Shedlet stories were, um, were very challenging. They were difficult to write. And then the, actually the, then the 1975 story actually became easier and it was, it was, it was flowing a lot better, but it took me a couple years to get a fair amount written for, for both of those. I just, I still wasn't, I wasn't quite sure. I wasn't ha- getting the sense of, of where I was going exactly with the, with the Shedlitz story, because by itself, it wasn't feeling complete to me. So after that point, when I realized that they belonged together, and I had more of a, a clarity on how they fit together as, as a whole, then things actually picked up and it it went a lot easier. I did have to go back to the beginning. I probably did four drafts um, of this of this novel, and obviously after I intertwined or commingled the two timelines, I ne- I found that there were chapters that were missing that needed to be written. I found that there were others I had written that I didn't need anymore. So it it became a, a whole different process, but it had the whole project had so much more energy at that point that I, I was very, I was very um, invigorated and energized by it. And even though I um, did go over it, like literally four times, maybe six times, if you count going, doing that process, when you go back looking for repetitive words and, and, you know, all those little nitpicky things that you can't really find when you're reading for content, I, I probably went through the thing about more than six times. To me, the, the biggest hurdle is getting to the end the first time. And I feel like once I finally get to the end and write the end, then I really know what the whole thing looks like. And then I can go back and try another another revision. So you, uh, you published with Wild Rose Press. Uh, can you tell us about Wild Rose, how you discovered them, and what it's been like uh, working with them? I saw you did thank them in your acknowledgments, which I think is can be rare sometimes to acknowledge the publisher in, the, in there. Yeah, I should probably back up a little bit because many years ago, I after I after I graduated college and I was thinking I was going to be a full time writer for the rest of my life, I finished the novel. 
and I went through the process I of trying to find an agent, did find an agent. Um, it seemed like it was all going to um, result in publication. He had like three major presses who were interested in publishing it, put the thing out to auction. Everybody was talking about film rights and all other kinds of rights. And at the end of the day, um, the deal didn't pan out. It didn't work out. So this time, when I had Anna's Promise completed, I, I started to embark on that same process. I decided I would look for an agent. And I probably sent the book out to about two dozen agents. And I actually got like a handful of very personal responses, which was which was very nice, considering how many got no, all the rest got like no response at all. And they said some interesting things to me that I, I really took to heart. Um, a couple of them were, were very complimentary, and they basically said, uh, you know, I, I like this manuscript. It's interesting and intriguing to me. I just have, like, no idea what publishing house I would sell, would sell it to, okay, <laughs> frankly. And then someone else said it just, like, doesn't fit in my portfolio. And a couple actually suggested that maybe I should consider going directly to a small press. And I thought... I'm kind of getting the feeling that this is just that this is a niche book and that it's not necessarily that I that I think it actually belongs better with a small press. So as soon as I decided that, which was a, a major shift because that wasn't where I started out at all, um, then I started looking at small presses. And honestly, I get uh, a number of writing magazines. One of them is The Writer. And in the back of the writer, they always list all these presses who are taking submissions, right? So I sent queries out and, and sample uh, manuscripts out to, I don't know, six or eight of those folks in the back. And one of them, I, I researched all of them first. And one of them I sent out to was the Wild Rose Press. So to make a long story short, the first one to respond to me and respond very quickly was actually the editor, the pub, not the editor, the publisher uh, and founder of the Wild Rose Press. I was really shocked by that to start with. Um, and she was very interested in the manuscript. Uh, we sort of went back and forth in, an, in a number of uh, uh, email exchanges, not very many phone conversations. They truly were mostly email conversations, but she was very responsive. Um, and I asked her for some um, references, other writers who had worked with them. So she gave me the name of a few, a few of her writers who would be willing to talk to me. And I was honestly shocked at how much they loved working with this press. I did, you know, learn more about them. I learned that this was a press founded in 2006 by two women authors, um, both romance writers. Um, who were disheartened by the way that publishers um, treated authors, and they believed there should be a better, friendlier way to publish books. And it's pretty much their mission to run their publishing house that way. So at the end of the day, um, they were interested in the book, and I was really, really pleased with just their whole philosophy. And after having spoken to some other writers, I was confident that I would learn a lot during the process, and that was kind of one of the things I really wanted. I wanted to make sure that working with 
this press and this editor was going to make me a better writer and it was going to make Anna's Promise a better book. And I think both of those things are true. Well, I think that that's fantastic. It's uh, it's not a guarantee that the, the publisher-author relationship is, is going to be a good one. So I, I think that's great that you found that a good partnership there with them. We talked a little bit before the interview about your launch party that you had just the other day. Um, can you talk about that step of the novel writing and publishing process, the getting your book out there, finding your readers, ha- having events, doing some marketing what has that been like for you and what what have you been learning about that that step of the process? Well, it's a totally brand new process. It's very, very different than that solitary time that I spend writing. In some ways, I I would rather spend my time writing. But I am so enthusiastic about the book that it's fun to talk about it with people who, who care and want to want to um, want to hear about it. Um, so yesterday, it was it was very heartwarming. I had friends from I mean I have my college roommates okay from you know thirty five years ago um, show up. I had friends I hadn't seen since before COVID um, come. So it was. It, it was a whole different experience because almost everyone in the room had read the book and there were people talking to me with tears in their eyes about how meaningful it was to them. And it was kind of shocking. It was really a little overwhelming. You know, we sit by ourselves as writers and we pour our heart onto the pages and we don't exactly know, you know, if those, those words from our heart are entering someone else's heart. And it was very, very endearing. It was, um, uh, a memorable experience. I don't have a a marketing plan. I didn't have anyone tell me how to do a launch party. I just decided I wanted to do it in my home and I wanted to celebrate this milestone of releasing Anna's Promise with you know people I knew and loved and my family around me. And it was great. And have you already started thinking about your next manuscript? Have you started working on something? Yeah, I'm actually getting very close to the, like the last act. I am working on something. Well, actually two things. One thing is I'm working on the outline for a sequel to Anna's Promise. That's something that uh, I started thinking about early on back in when I first got my um, advanced reader copies and some folks I knew read the book. They instantly started asking me about what was going to happen next about the sequel. And I started like thinking about this all the time and writing and just getting ideas. The next thing I knew, I, you know, stayed up half the night and wrote out the first draft of an outline. So a sequel is, will be in the works, but right now I'm actually nearing the end of my next novel. Very different. I wanted to change gears for a bit before I, I work on a sequel it's the novel is entitled Flying Dragons, and this book is set uh, between 1980 and 2000. It spans the globe from Michigan to New York, Sweden, China, Hong Kong, and California. And this story follows the journey of two childhood friends who are connected by their interest in kung fu and martial arts from when they were kids. 
but for one, a dedication becomes an obsession. And in this alternating story of these two characters, Ethan and John, the reader follows these two men pursuing this one goal in two very different ways. Um, John denies his identity, his family, his friends, and his past. And he works his way into the inner circle of China's most accomplished masters. And Ethan becomes a doctor of traditional Chinese medicine and builds a family. And he marries Erin, who is John's sister, while he uh, is teaching and practicing Kung Fu. And the novel includes some significant historical events, including Tiananmen Square. So that's what I'm working on now. And it's very... uh, very exciting and very engaging. I look forward to it every single night. Very good. Yeah, you sound sounds like it definitely keeps you busy and it sounds like an interesting project. Well, Diane, thank you so much for joining me. Congratulations on Anna's Promise. And um, I definitely look forward to, to seeing what you come out with next. Thank you, Colin. I really appreciate your taking the time to interview me and your interest in historical fiction. Thank you. Thank you.